This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to Dear Prudence. As always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. Today's show was the final stop on our live tour, recorded live at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle on March 20th, 2019. I was joined on stage by author and assistant professor of English at UC Berkeley, Grace Lavery. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, I've always wanted to say this. Good night, Seattle. Oh my God! Why did we not prepare any Frasier material? I my life is Frasier material. Jesus Christ! I have so I can't much Frasier. That didn't occur to me until I literally sat down. This is great because it means that we're going to get to have so many. Because our life, I think, is very oh. Frasier. Okay. Yeah. You're Martin. I'm Niles, and you're <laughs> Daphne. Could there be a more T for T couple in sitcom history? Uh, yeah. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this is the last uh, night of the tour, and I'm really excited to have Grace with me as my guest. Grace has been one of the most like long-standing and beloved guests on the show, and now we're getting married, so that just feels... <laughs> Not like because she was such a good guest. Like, that was <laughs> happening... You too could marry your podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> like... Separately, because we already knew each other, but it, it has been great, and the the show has been a big part of our courtship. Um, I'm I'm gonna move ahead to our first letter, which I'm very excited to read, oh, and shit. there is a line in it that I just left in because I have some theories about it. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the letter, but I was like, I'm not gonna help this person out. But it and is edit the whole thing. It is totally the whole it's thing. It's totally the whole thing. All right, so here we go. Subject is privileged problem. Dear Prudence, my marriage was recent, but my husband and I have been together since before we were in our 20s for nine years. He's truly amazing, and we've been inseparable since we met. I live with his mother because my husband has gone half of the year for work, so not that inseparable, and she has medical issues. She retired early and stays at home. I'm very lucky to live in a decent neighborhood and that we get along for the most part. However, the city I live in is quickly expanding, leading to increased crime and a vibe I just don't enjoy. That was the mm. line, in case you were curious. Um, I'm almost done with school, and the best jobs for my major will be in smaller mountain towns. I want to move away when I'm done with school. I feel completely tied down because my husband won't move away from his mother. To a degree, I can understand this. She's a bit limited in what she can do and has no other family in town. However, she can fully function without us and only retired early because she wanted to. She has no friends and no hobbies and doesn't intend to change that. When I started dating him, I had no idea I would end up moving in to care for her. When we got married, he heavily implied he was eager to leave town, but that has since changed. I feel selfish but resentful. Leaving him is out of the question, but now I feel trapped in this city, which is rapidly turning into something that depresses me. This feels like such a privileged problem, which in turn makes me feel even more guilty for obsessing about it. Overall, I love my mother-in-law, but I'm frustrated with this situation. She's getting lonely, even with me here, and is becoming a bit neurotic and extremely negative. Am I wrong for wanting to just move? Is there ever a compromise that truly works? 
I edited this a lot. And every time I read a letter out loud, I realize like what looks condensed on paper sounds like Middlemarch length. I don't know what you are implying about Middlemarch. Yeah, Yeah. it is long. I guess that's one thing we know about that novel, you philistine. But it strikes me that there are like five different questions here. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, one question I'm coming away with is, is M-I-L really a traditional abbreviation for mother-in-law? Oh, it's a huge thing on all the, like, boards. Ah. See, when I see those letters, I think of something else, Daniel. Do you think of MILFs that I got cut of off mil- a little bit? Like cut off MILFs. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Three quarters of a MILF. Sadly. Maybe, like, more my like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only it meant that. Um, yeah, so uh, having gone to... Uh, an evangelical Christian college in suburban Los Angeles in the mid aughts. I feel like I have a lot of familiarity with couples where one member is in the military and they've been together since they were teenagers. And it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big energy. Um, Oftentimes those couples end up getting divorced. Um, I don't Sound of s- a helicopter in the background. Yeah. Circulating I mean, fan overhead, shadows. You know, I, I just like... The military. Between like... You know, the like the news we've had lately about the number of like the handful thus far of military members who have been like exposed as having like white supremacist connections and then including the line of like, there's a vibe I just don't enjoy, which like just picking between the lines. What I'm reading is like this city is getting less white. And I don't like that. That yeah. is what I am reading between the lines here. Do you feel like that's a fair assessment of this letter? I, I do. That was how I, I read. The city I live in is quickly expanding, leading to increased crime and a vibe I just don't enjoy. But it did make me think possibly that, in a sense, what it's possible that what's being objected to is something that we'd call gentrification, which might have a different kind of way of thinking about vibe. Sure, yeah. I want to be open to that, certainly. That's a possibility. But it wasn't my first reading either. Yeah, yeah. but it, that may, especially I want to move to a small mountain town. Just felt yeah, like... That's the kicker, yeah. yeah. And stockpile, well, like it doesn't... I don't know... I don't know that... I don't know how much I want to help this person. Okay, but is staying with the mill going to help? <laughs> no. I mean, I agree with you. Let's, let's make fun of this uh, racist. But... Um, <laughs> What is helped in the world by, by, by keeping her in this relationship with her mother, which, uh, mother-in-law, which I find such a... Can you imagine the conversation where one person would say, so do you have any friends? No. Do you have any hobbies? No. <laughs> any plans to change that? I do not have yeah. any plans to change either my friend total or hobby total. I will stay on zero friends and zero hobbies indefinitely and invite you to deal with it. Yeah, so... <laughs> Very much, I, I think this. there's that bit of like, when I started dating him, I had no idea I would end up moving in to take care of her. He heavily implied that he wanted to leave town, but that has since changed. I don't, nowhere in here is like, and then one day we had a conversation and he asked me to move in with her and I agreed. It kind of sounds like this either snuck up on her by degrees yeah. or they all like... The two of them moved in together, and then he was like, hey, I have to go overseas. Can my mom stay? By the way, my plane leaves tomorrow, and I am going you know, to the military, so I might die, so you should probably say yes. Um, maybe I am reading too much into that. So I, I work in a university, and mm-hmm. um, I'm really, I've been struggling since you first showed me this letter to imagine what major is particularly well-suited to the smaller mountain towns. Um, Forest management? I mean, I don't think so. That would be a rural gig that you could do anywhere in the mountain country. management. I mean, but it would have to be smaller urban planning in mountain Mo- mountain themed urban planning on a small scale. Okay. <laughs> or 
on a, not not small but smaller working on a yeah. me, medium to small scale urban d- planning for mountain people mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't it does seem it oddly specific. It does seem, but it also seems like it's in bad faith. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, yeah. It's not that I want to move to a smaller mountain town. Far from it. Oh, I'd love to be one of your cosmopolitan urbanites, sipping champagne out there in Seattle with those psychiatrists. But, but as sadly, a Chuck Wagon planner, <laughs> there's only three cities for me. Yeah, um, the three of the smaller mountain towns. Yeah, yeah and the vibe. Try that a I, larger mountain town. You know. Anyway, the vibe that I get from this letter writer is very much. My only options are keep doing this forever or leave my husband. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how to say something like I want something and I'm willing to do things that make my relatives unhappy. Um, or, or even like I would like to move to a smaller town for a while just mm-hmm. because I would like to. Um, and I want to really separate that from like the coded implications of like vibes, which – Let's there be are generous. plenty of reasons why people might want to move to smaller mountain towns. Yeah, absolutely. So smaller mountain towns are charming. Is this a small mountain town? Is Seattle a small mountain town? No, it's I a saw large, one of the largest cities on the West Coast. I was going to say, if this is a small mountain town, it's delightful. Yeah, but it doesn't qualify. <laughs> no, at the very, at the very least, you would say this was a smaller mountain city, but it's a medium-sized mountain city, shading into a large one. You know, that's a good point. So, yeah. I, I think yes, with this person reassess what you mean by changing vibe. Get specific in your head, not out loud. Like, think about what is this vibe? Why am I uncomfortable? Um, Is my safety actually being threatened here? Um, Or is there something that makes me uncomfortable because I've never had to think about it before? And if so, why? That's a lifelong question that will maybe lead to some interesting thoughts in your head that I would encourage you to pursue. But, uh, you know, coming to the question of, Am I ever allowed to say to my husband, hey, I would like to in the next year not be living with your mother. Mm-hmm. I, pl- I plan on doing that. How do we, you know, how, how can you be a part of this process with me? How will you come and visit me during your half a year off? Um, and say that t- to your husband rather than like wait for him to say, you are allowed to leave my mother. She is clearly going to live if you go. Like she is going to be able to continue to not like people from the comfort of her own home. Mm -hmm. Um, So this isn't something that you need. She's not going to like it. uh, And he's probably not going to like it. And that is something that you're going to have to figure out a way to, um, to accept. So I take it. You don't want to play the leave your husband card at this point. Um, Because that's obviously my first instinct in general, you know, Smoke a little weed, leave your husband. You, you, don't, you don't recommend that people smoke weed hardly I, ever. I don't, but this lady needs to smoke a little weed. Fair enough. You <laughs> know, I, I, I don't want to say try a little acid, you know, but that, maybe try a little acid. Fair you enough. Know? L- leaving aside the drugs. Anyway, my point is, you know, leave your husband, live a little, go to a larger mountain town for once, you know, feel the, the, the wind beneath your wings. I think... Uh, so one of the things that I'm trying to do is not recommend that people leave their husbands less, but add it to a list of possibilities. I, I respect that. And, so and, I yeah. think if this person in the situation she has described says, you know, we've been doing a lot of my helping your mother-in-law while you're away, I'm not going to do that anymore. I think that will eventually lead to them splitting up. Because I, I don't think, see how it could Yeah, I think he will say, actually, what I have wanted in a wife is someone who looks in on my mom while yeah. I go away. Because if this, uh, I mean, you know, we should probably say this. Um, if the husband is just okay with this mm-hmm. uh, setup, 
and has no sensitivity to the unlivable situation that he's put his wife in. Um, that's not okay, actually. Yeah. That's yeah. really not okay. And um, I, I think she, it, it's certainly true that she has a responsibility to articulate her discomfort and her desires herself. Um, but the situation is not a livable one. Yeah, and if and he hasn't noticed that himself, then I would imagine he's a deeply insensitive individual. And I would say that part of the problem does not strike me as privileged, saying, like, I think, I, I feel like my husband, like, misled me into thinking the two of us were going to start an independent life together and then put me in a position where he made me feel responsible for his like ailing mother while he was on the other side of the world. And I don't know how to say I want something else for my life without getting it from both of them that I'm selfish and thoughtless. Um, then that's, that's a real problem. And I think if you say, I'm not going to keep doing that. And your husband says you have to, you'll probably get divorced and that will be good. But if there's a 5% chance you say that and he says, oh, wow, I, I guess you have your own opinions about where you would like to live. Let's talk about that. Then, you know, maybe you can go somewhere from there. Um, but yeah, you don't have to keep doing this. Uh, you don't need an excuse to leave that's like, oh, my major means I have to live in Boulder. Um, that's a large mountain town, Daniel. <gasps> What's a small... That's not... What, it, the small amount of towns are not places that you or I know. The, the mountain people have them. We don't know <laughs> the where they are. People. It's not Denver or Boulder. The, the wisdom or of the prospector. Yeah, you know, All right. it's other Colorado towns. You're right, you're right. At any rate, you don't have to say. Not even American. Because of my major, I have to leave. You can say, I'm going to leave. And that will be fine. Would you read our next letter? Okay, I mean, are we. Yeah, okay. I have more thoughts about that. But is there any. Yeah, is there anything else that you feel like we haven't no, gotten it's to? Fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Let's just move on. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, so new friend group turned on me dear Prudence I re recently moved to a new city and made a group of great friends I've been having a blast until about a month ago one of the friends in the group Maureen recently came into money before this it seemed like uh, she was the least financially stable and least mature member of the group one night she called to ask if she could borrow money to fix her car and I said no she immediately started blaming me for all of her financial troubles and claimed that I'm the one who broke the car when I borrowed it a few months back. I didn't. I returned it to her just as I found it. Now she's telling the whole group and everyone is taking her side. But when I first met everyone, they all warned me about Maureen and a few of them even implied they didn't want to be friends with her anymore. But now the story is that she's trying to get her life together and I'm holding her back because I broke her car. I've tried telling my side of the story to no avail. Everyone says I just make, make this right by paying for her car. I keep thinking I should try to make new friends. But that's really hard for me. And this is the first time I've found one person, let alone a group of people, who have shared almost all my interests and hobbies. It was the social life I've always dreamed of. Is it salvageable? Should I just pay for her car? Definitely. Definitely you need to dream bigger when it comes to the social life. Yeah. Like... If, if the biggest thing you can dream is like, we all really enjoy the same board games, but they think I'm a liar and want me to give money to the person they like the least, mm -hmm. you need to dream bigger. Okay, but think about it this way. What about if you and I and our friends find someone who's recently moved to the Bay Area, mm -hmm. lend them a car, mm -hmm. right? And then we, a, a month later, we tell them that it's broken and they broke it. And they need to pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think it, we could do that? <laughs> sure, you we think could. That, I bet we could make a little money that way. <laughs> I'm sure. 
I'm sure we could upset I'm on a the very grift. nice That's person. That's what I bring to the relationship. I'm always hustling. Yeah, you, know? you are. You are always thinking about. I'm always thinking the about the side gigs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I. Uh, can definitely relate to like, especially as a slightly younger person, like finding a group of friends who are all like, welcome, here's one person we hate. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a strange thing to tell me, but sure, I hope you all are able to cut ties. And then later it's like, no, we actually have this very weird relationship with this person that we hate and you've upset them and now you're the problem and we're never going to stop like bending over backwards for the person we hate. And you're threatening like the weird ecology of like growing around the like, what was the bad tree from Fern Gully? <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Thank you. I can't pronounce well, it. What but was it, it was, called? Texas. Texas was like the big mean evil tree that was like, ah, oh, I'm going to infect all the other trees. And like the logical response would be like, let's get rid of this tree. And everyone's like, no, we need it. I've never seen this Marie. movie. It's about trees who are friends. It's, it's about, <laughs> it's about a lot of things. Uh, Robin Williams also plays, I believe a rapping bat. Ooh. It was, I assume rapping like the musical style, yes. not like he, yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The point is, I, I, I think you have stumbled onto a really bad group dynamic yeah. where, like, they are kind of all fueled by complaining about Maureen. And then whenever the opportunity comes to do something about Maureen, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That exposes the lie that we are good people. Um, <laughs> we need Maureen to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. Maybe they all feel a bit guilty about bitching about Maureen. You know? Well, and now that they want to make Maureen money. the hero. Well, that's the thing. Has she won the lottery? Like, what's happened to Maureen here? I'm thinking, like, finally came into her trust fund. This feels like just oh, came into her you trust think fund. These are behavior. rich people. Yeah. Interesting possibility. This is like the kind of fight about money that rich people get into. Actually, that's what that's what it feels yeah. like to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like that, that kind idea. of like. So when we we're talking about this one the other night, you shared a theory about this, which didn't initially occur to me, and I noticed that you haven't shared it with this. Uh, audience yeah. and I suspect that's because it makes you feel guilty is that right yeah my first read was like yeah. did you hit the car yeah the, I mean and I've, I've sort of become persuaded of that see I, now I've abandoned it I no. don't think the letter writer hit oh the my car God, it's I like think the it's portrait totally of Mr. made up WH. no I think there's a possibility that maybe this letter writer did I feel like I should preface this by saying in college I did hit a friend's car with plausible deniability or like I hit a tree with a friend's car and it was like plausibly deniable enough that I was like, oh, I really don't want to acknowledge that I did it. And then it just Daniel, became... did you write this letter? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I did not. No, I did not. But insurance... Maureen, if you're out there. <laughs> yeah. I have insurance now. I can pay you back. Um, I want to operate on the assumption that the letter writer did not, in fact, uh, okay. bust up the car. Well, so one of the two things is true. Either um, this letter writer has a terrible group of friends... Um, who are maliciously trying to extort money from her, possibly through some kind of medium-term grift for which they have made Maureen the point person. (laughs) That's one theory of the case. Mm -hmm. The other theory of the case is that an individual has hit a car, you know, has, has broken their friend's car and written to an advice columnist for an online newspaper. You could just say website. Or websites, as you call them in this new economy, uh, to attempt to 
disguise the fact. Yeah. Neither of these is a plausible theory. I think we need a new... Th they're both kind of cracky, aren't they? They're both kind of odd ideas. They well, are. Something's afoot with this now. Like, something is not right in this story. I think... So here's what I think it is. Uh, last year, my car broke down right after I had taken it to get the oil changed. And I just, like... There's only so much room in my brain for logic. And I just felt irrationally resentful. Like, I just know the guys who changed the oil in my car are to blame for this. And this is why my car is broken down. Because my car worked before this. And then some guys opened the hood and did mysterious things I don't understand. And now it doesn't work the next day. And I, like, took it in. And the people, and I was like, so yesterday I got my oil changed. Do you think that's why it doesn't work anymore? And they were like, No. It's like this other thing that I didn't understand. And I, I couldn't really let myself believe it. Like I knew that they were telling me the truth. This was a totally different company. They had no reason to say those other people uh, either did or didn't damage your car. But it just felt like, well, I started to notice it now. And they did stuff I didn't understand before. And I feel like with Maureen, there's an excellent chance that the car had been like, well on its way to breaking down already. And then someone borrowed it. And then she started to notice like something is up. And there was no, like, smoking gun, but she just wanted it to not be her fault. I don't like it when my car breaks down. In my mind, cars should last for 50 years. And so anytime they don't, I'm like, something is horribly wrong. <laughs> Instead of, like, this is how cars work. Um, and so I think Maureen just really wants it to be somebody else's fault. Um, and you think I, Maureen does? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, Maureen Couldn't is like... could that same theory of the case apply to the letter, I think? What? The, le the letter writer, too, could have accidentally broken it and really not wanted to. Yeah, I, I think just in terms of, like, what causes a car to break down other than just, like, time and entropy. And also, what happened to the car? Because it's, it's, it's not that it broke down, it's that it broke. You know? Yeah. So, to me, right. that implies, like, a, you know, like a, a fender bender or something. Like, you know, something's scratched or Yeah, I mean, if this was the first time you heard that the car was broken, several months after you gave it back to her, that is made up, right? Like, if you returned the car to her and she said, great, thank you, and then two months later, my car's not working. Okay, so then you. why is this person not writing a letter saying, my crazy friends are claiming that I've broken a car that I absolutely didn't break and I have no credible, there's no credible reason why they would think that I broke this car. Because it's the social life they've always dreamed of. Well, good luck to them. Yeah. I want to say something on this. This was what I was going to say in the last one before you cut me off and moved on to this I'm one. Sorry. I was in such a hurry. But it was this, and it was just um, both of these uh, letters, the first one and the second one, start with the same uh, format, which is he is truly amazing uh, of the husband, or um, I've been having a blast in the second one. And it seems very often that when people begin um, Dear Prudence letters where they're really keen to say that they're very, very happy, mm -hmm. usually they're not. Yeah. Right? That seems to be a good rule of thumb. Yes. Um, so maybe that's something just worth considering. I think my advice to this person is, you know, you deserve a new group of friends and I think you can find them. Yeah. I, I think I'm right there with you. And if not, move to a smaller mountain town and you can... <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I think the only, like, I think it's very clear here, like, you, you did not break the car. It's not reasonable to assume that you driving a car several months ago is why it doesn't work now. Um, and the thing that is going to be hard to let go of is, like, I can't believe I found a group of friends who share this hobby of mine. Um, 
what if I never find that again? And so that I would just say it would be, I hope you were able to find people who share your interests because that's really meaningful. That's not just like a cosmetic, you know, unimportant trivial thing. But more important than that are, are people who will not like introduce you to their friends by saying, here's our friend that we hate, but whenever she does or says something unreasonable, we really get behind her for reasons we are not going to go into. And also we don't trust you when you say you didn't break someone's car. Like that, those are like, you know, if the, if the issues of character are there, then no amount of like similarities of taste will make up for it. I, I wish so much I could go like back in time to myself at 19 and be like, just because this person thinks the same things are funny that you do, does not mean that they are going to be nice to you if you try to date them. Mm. <laughs> Please write that down. You know, I, I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but it's usually... Um... It's usually bad if someone likes the same things as I do because I don't especially like that I like the things I like, you know. I, the things I like usually, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, it's like, that's kind of a shitty thing about me, you know. I, I like things, but I'm, you know, it's, it's not my higher self. I would like to be in love with people or to have close relationships with people who l love things that I think are noble rather than things I think are funny because things I think are funny are usually like, you know, someone falling over. Or it's it's, it's not... a continuum that goes like all the way up to like the John Waters thing of like if you go home with someone and they don't have a bunch of books, like don't have sex with them. Yeah. Which is just like mistaking interests in common yeah. or certain hobbies or owning books with like good moral character or right. sexual interest. Um, and I, I think generally it's good to move away from that. Do we think that the inverse is true? That's what I want to tell. Like if you go home with someone and they have a lot of books, you, you, you have out. to. Yeah, God, yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I was planning on just having Fuck a cup off, of nerd. coffee, but <laughs> like, these are several bookshelves. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, actually, I am a professor kind of, of English. I teach a UC book. <laughs> that, that does kind of segue into our next letter, Yeah. Uh, which I'm very excited to get to read. The subject is, my sister is convinced that she's a genius. So, like, what? We'll just, I'll just read the letter. I'm just going to read the letter. That Dear was, Prudence. You just did a little camp finger thing. It was cute. A few months ago, cute. my 34-year-old sister took one of those online quizzes, the kind that say only people with an IQ of 150 or higher will get a perfect score on this quiz. So, like, a pop-up, basically. <laughs> Well, what do you know? She got a perfect score. She started bragging about this nonstop, both online and off, but I held my tongue. But it wasn't long before my sister's happiness soon turned to rage towards my parents, mostly my mother, for failing to recognize her potential as a child, for not sending her to a special school, and for, quote, neglecting her gift to the point of emotional abuse. Again, I said nothing. Then my sister aired her grievances on a Facebook post where she ripped into our mother and all her friends joined in, calling our mother terrible names. Luckily, our mother doesn't use Facebook, but I still thought this was crossing a line, so I left a comment on the post saying that those quizzes are, quote, fake, and that if anything, taking them seriously is a sign of an impaired IQ. Well, this has set off World War III in our family. In the past few weeks, my sister has been calling everyone she can think of, including all our relatives, as well as several childhood friends, to let them know what I've done and to tell them they should cut off contact with me. My mother is furious with me and is demanding that I apologize and that I admit my sister is a genius. <laughs> 
both of which I refuse to do. If I don't, mom is threatened to disinvite me from all future family events. She still doesn't know about the Facebook post. Should I settle this once and for all by showing it to her? I took screenshots, but I'm worried it will break her heart. Is your sister's name Maureen? (laughs) Has she recently come into a lot of money? (laughs) So we'll just start with IQ, fake and racist, right? Fake and racist. Fake and racist. So anyone who's invested in the year of our Lord 2019 with like IQs. Fake, racist, eugenicist. Um, One thing that is interesting about the history of IQ is that it's a quotient. So people don't really think about this, but... Sorry, I'm doing professorial. No, that's bullshit. what I want. I, I no, no, no. What's an intelligence so my, my co- quotient? Can, one thing I can actually do is tell you that my colleague Susan Schweik at UC Berkeley is an expert on the IQ test and the history of the IQ test, and she's absolutely incredible. And one of the th- and it's fake and racist. And one of the things that is uh, fascinating about it is that it is a quotient, meaning that it is a relationship between two numbers rather than a number. Um, Nowadays, conventionally, we just say an IQ of 150 or whatever, but it should be uh, understood as a ratio, and the denominator in that ratio is age. Oh. Um, So in other words, it's a a way of thinking about uh, your supposed aptitude for whatever relative to your age. Um, A 34-year-old who gets 100... And you know what I mean? It's like it's actually not... um, Even within the, 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 the messed up logic of the IQ test, this is not actually an accurate way to do an IQ test. It's a way of measuring developmental changes. Yeah. And I'm not an expert on this, but my colleague Sue Schweikert, so read her work. It's really good. Well, that is frankly helpful. Yeah. Um, Not that I think your sister is going to be super receptive to that conversation. (laughs) Because Um, actually, I I want to sort of leave open the possibility that the sister is kind of a genius here because something is happening. She certainly has a genius for something. Yeah, exactly. She's got dr- she's got moxie, yeah. this lady. Um, she's she is up at dawn, calling your childhood friends, yeah. demanding they cut ties with you. Like she is hard at work. What would you do if this was your sister and you had screenshots that could break your mother's heart? <sighs> but would maybe well, my let mother's you off the hook. being weak. Yeah. So break the heart. You know that yeah. heart needs breaking. Yeah. That's that's my instinct. Oh, there was some disagreement there. I think. I, <laughs> Don't do it. You think I don't know. I, and this isn't a pantomime. I, you know, you want to get up anyway. Whatever. My, <laughs> point, my point is, I think um, that uh, you know, I like to start fights. I would start a fight here. Yeah. I, I, I think you can have a showdown. I think it'd be fun. What your sister is doing uh, is creating havoc for the sake of it, mm-hmm. um, and I appreciate that. I admire that. I think there's a a commitment to that, and I think you 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 meet her on her own terrain. You play the card that she's hoping you won't play. I like that. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly I don't think this is a situation where, like, laying low is going to um, bear a lot of fruit. Like, laying low means she keeps hassling your childhood friends and all your other relatives. And it, it's not quite the Marine situation, but it's definitely going to be, like, she's the one we have to pacify. And, yeah, what she's asking for is outrageous, but if we do it, she'll calm down. And when she's not calmed down, she makes life hell for everybody. So, like, the group dynamic is going to swing in the direction of, like, the 34-year-old who's, like, calling up childhood friends and screaming, admit I'm a genius or stop talking to my sibling. Um, (laughs) If you lay low, she will win. Um, And I don't know that I want to put you, like, like, send you into battle in the sense of, like, scorch the earth right back at her, like, lay waste to her life. 
Um, You're a coward. But I do, th- <laughs> I do think um, that it's important to kind of figure out uh, both what are things that you want to like say, I don't want to cross this line no matter how unreasonable she becomes, and also what are things that I'm just not going to give quarter to. Um, I can't be a coward. I said give quarter. You did. Like Robin Hood, who's yeah. a brave, brave character. Brave fox and transmasculine energy. Oh, extremely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, Robin Hood is a trans man. That is Robin Hood is a trans man. I never thought of that before. Clear on its face. Is there... From the leggings to the, like, you yeah, know, totally. deep faith in, like, male community and yeah. mm-hmm. love of hiking. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Sprightliness. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know... With your childhood friends, I would say maybe get on the phone and say, I'm really sorry that my sister is calling you and harassing you about her, like, genius quiz. Um, I'm embarrassed. I I wish she wouldn't do that. Um, I'm so sorry she's drawing you into this. How are you doing? Like, just offer people a reasonable alternative to your sister. And the people who are like, oh, thank God, I'd like to flock to that, those are people you can continue to invest in. Um, and and mm. with, with relatives, you can kind of let them know, like, I'm really sorry that she's doing this. Um, I, I don't have, like, a, a, a horse in this race in terms of establishing who was or wasn't a genius at which age. Um, just know that this is not coming from me, and I'm really sorry. So, uh, you know, if, if, if that doesn't stop her, that will at least let other people know that you are not, like, putting fuel on her fire. Um, I do think when it comes to your mom, maybe save the screenshots in reserve and just say like, mom, I love you. I get that she's really hurt and upset about this right now. The only reason I had anything to say about this was because I saw that she was talking really angrily about you particularly and how you failed her um, and were abusive because you did not put her in a genius school. I felt like that was an unfair characterization of our childhood and it upset me. Um, that's where I'm coming from. If you still want to ban me from family holidays, that would really, really hurt. But there we are. And then, like, then if that does nothing, I don't think the screenshots would have, frankly. But you can all, if she always says, like, she said what? You can say, like, here is what she said. So show her the screenshots. We're but, agreeing. You're framing this as a disagreement, but it's an agreement. I'm saying, tell, like, give her an overview first. And if sure. she seems inclined want to, see to want sure. to see it, yeah. then, yes. But okay, don't just, like, that text them to her and say, like, look, um, that would be, I think. It's a side issue at this point, but can we talk about selective education? Yeah. Uh, because it just came up briefly in what you were saying. Yeah. And not that I necessarily want to uh, lurch too far into the gifted kid tirade, which is its own form of, you know, maelstrom. Um, but I can talk from personal experience about some of this, which is that, do you mind if I talk about personal? You know what I'm about to say, I think. Yeah, okay. So um, when I was young, I was diagnosed with a learning uh, disability uh, when I was eight years old. And then a couple of years later, when I was 10, I was diagnosed um, on the basis of an IQ test with uh, sort of in- increased aptitude of some kind. And on, it was the same evidence, weirdly, that led to each of them, which was they showed me abstract shapes when I was a child um, and asked me what they looked like. And I just said lots and lots of different things. And it, I said so many things that they thought I must be very smart, um, which isn't what smartness. Anyway, my point is I was sent off to a selective school at the age of 11 um, and hated it, actually, and still have a real, um, have real difficulty dealing with that 
notion of being taken away from my community and taken away from people that I thought of as peers um, and placed in this environment. It's something that I really struggle with. Yeah, and I think in general that's part of what feels sad about this letter is it's it would be one thing if the letter writer had said like my sister has certain things about our childhood that she feels hurt about certain things that she felt like weren't nurtured like that could be a real meaningful conversation you could potentially have with a parent but this idea that like because of this like historically racist test I wasn't like plucked out from my peers and sent to a special school for like extra good kids who should be fast tracked to like money and success that's bad we shouldn't have that um, you know, and especially like in this country, like again, like gifted and talented programs often have a lot to do with like educational segregation. Like mm-hmm. it's uh, you know um, burn down Hogwarts is what we're saying. Yeah, so I, I, I think it's really, really fair to say that here and to say like, listen, sister, if if you want to have a conversation about ways in which you feel like hurt or neglected or parts of yourself that you want to like nurture or foster now, like let's do that. But but being angry that you didn't get sent off to like a school that would have given you extra resources at the expense of other kids, you know, 28 years ago. How much time is that? That would be four. Fine, 25 years ago. Um, you know, I, I just don't support that. And, and that's, I think, a really important thing to push back against. Mm-hmm. And again, if she just goes totally ballistic at that and says, like, that means that you hate me and you want me to die in a ditch, you know, you can just go ahead and say, like, best of luck to you in all your future endeavors and like block her on social media, block her phone number and hang out with people who don't take her calls because she is acting. She is not like advocating for IQ tests or selective education. Like this is where you get like this level of entitlement and fury Mm -hmm. and like I should have been treated better than other kids because of a quiz I took online. Um, I don't like your sister. And the best well, I can hope... I kind of love your sister because I relate to the sister. <laughs> but the I sister's can... in the wrong. Yes. Very, very, very clearly. You know, as always, <laughs> it's possible to say, I admire your energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's misplaced. I agree. Would you please read our next letter? I would love to. Queerer wedding party. One of my best friends recently came out as non-binary and was going by a gender-neutral nickname and they-them pronouns. I'm very glad for them and have been practicing to avoid thoughtlessly misgendering them. They live in another part of the country, so I only see them once or twice a year. They are in my wedding party in a couple of months, and my very large, somewhat conservative family is used to my friend's old name and pronouns. Apart from telling family that I speak to you regularly about this change, what steps can I take to ensure my friend is not misgendered without putting them in the awkward position of scrutiny that might occur if I did something like make an announcement? I know they would rather not be the center of attention, but I also know that being repeatedly misgendered all night would probably suck. So this just makes me think of, I sent Grace a picture earlier today that somebody had sent to me, which is just like an old-timey prospector that's just like, we don't take too kindly to misgendering in these parts. (laughs) And that's all I could think of as I was reading this letter. I found it very charming. Um, I find this sweet. I find this letter writer sweet and and, and well-intended, and I wish them the best, and I hope their wedding goes great. I think there's a limit to how much you can control um, whether or not that's going to happen. But I think within that framework of I cannot make this night go perfectly, that there are probably some things that you can do to make things a little bit easier. And number one, I would say, is just start by asking your friend. Um, Because your friend might lean towards, actually, I don't want you to like have to have conversations with your relatives. I'm prepared to potentially get misgendered by a bunch of people I don't see very often for one evening, but I would much rather that you not have those conversations with them and then just like 
power through it. Or they might say, like, I would actually love it if you ran a little interference for me. That would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Um, but you gotta, you got to ask just because everybody can feel really differently about that. And certainly in my own transition, I have had different times where, like, if someone asked me, I would say, like, oh, thank you. Yes, please do. Or, like, nope. I just, like, marked that day on my calendar as, like, I'm going to get misgendered mm-hmm. a lot day. And it's I – would, I would prefer that to having a lot of personal conversations with, like, relatives of a friend I only see twice a year. So ask. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good point. And I think also worth um, registering that if the family is large, there may be a different set of issues. There may just be some people who are likely to ask incredibly personal questions. Mm-hmm. There are, might be some people who will get everything technically right but treat it with a kind of contempt um, that is palpable and is meant to be palpable. There may be just different kinds of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that may be worth thinking about uh, with, with the friend as well, um, you know, or individually and with other members of the family. But I think it is really important in these moments um, for us to, for everyone, I guess, for this letter writer and for me and for you and for everyone to accept that we don't get to control really fundamentally all of other people's ways of referring to us and addressing us. And we wish that we did and we have modes of redress that will allow us to um, shape these things and to move forward collectively. And there are things that we can do, mm-hmm. but, 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 but they are limited. And, and, and we collectively, um, we, we work in imperfect circumstances as we try to understand transness, understand non-binariness, and you know, work out how to make life more livable for each other yeah. and ourselves. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's right on the money too. Like there are ways, especially with family and people that you love, that you can invite them and say like, I have no interest in compelling you to do things. Um, I would love you to know something and to take the opportunity when you are given uh, it um, to respect other people's desires about their own lives and their own bodies, even if it doesn't seem like something that you would want for yourself, even if it doesn't immediately seem legible or understandable. Um, And so I I think, again, checking in with your friend first um, and then like having something prepared for relatives who might want to ask you like a question that you kind of want to like run interference on. Um, and it just kind of come back to like, I'm happy to talk a little bit about this or answer some of the questions, although I obviously can't speak on behalf of my friend, but you know, ultimately what I'm just asking for is whether or not you would consider on my wedding day going out of your way towards making this friend of mine feel welcome. Um, that would mean a lot to me and it would mean a lot to my friend. And even if it's not something that feels really natural to you, it would mean a lot to me. Um, and that can sometimes get through to people who might otherwise be a little bristly or a little like goofy. Um, but I would also say to check in with your friend of like, if, if I do ask people beforehand, if it comes up in the moment, would you prefer that I just gently correct people or would you rather not say anything? Because again, you know, usually, like, usually my response if somebody misgenders me, especially if it's in like good faith, is just like, that is fine. Let me tip you an extra 20% and run away from the situation. Like often, again, I don't want to speak for everybody, but often, um, especially if somebody is like newly out, they don't want to have like a bunch of big conversations about it all night at your wedding. Like they, they would like to keep it moving. They don't want to be seen as difficult. So, um, your friend may very well say like, Oh, I would actually love it if you would like quietly correct people. Or your friend might say like, if it happens, I just want to like go hang out with like the queer contingent at like table nine. It was um, table 10. That yeah. <laughs> we were yes. Yes. It's always yeah. good to have the table <laughs> where everyone's just like, ah, we're at this table for a reason. 
our wedding will have a straight people table. <laughs> yeah. Guess. Yeah. And then just beyond that, you know, know that it will still happen. Yeah. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, don't worry about it. No big deal. I just mean in the sense that like, do what you can to help out your friend. Mm-hmm. And then also don't worry that you didn't do enough if somebody slips up because that happens and your friend will not hold you like personally accountable for that. You plan the action, not the result. You know, yeah. you, you do everything that is possible to um, show up for your friend and show up for uh, your community. And then um, you understand that the, 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 your efforts are limited in their efficacy. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it, it, it sometimes hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, we, this isn't exactly within the, the, the confines of the letter, but I think often when we talk about um, issues around referring to other people or addressing other people, we frame it implicitly, into, and this letter does too, in terms of um, speech codes and self-policing and, and, and kind of everyone minding their P's and Q's and implicitly we're having an argument about free speech or something like it. Um, but in fact, really what we're talking about is how it feels to be misunderstood and how it feels to be uh, excluded. And... I think often if people reflected more on that side of things, um, the question of, you know, how how would it feel, do you think, to be addressed consistently in a way that felt um, really profoundly at odds with your sense of yourself? You know, Mm -hmm. feel maddening. It does feel maddening, you know? Um, I I think the the more that we can encourage people, including this letter writer, to reflect on that part of the question and less on, like, who can I police and how, um, I think in a sense, we'll be moving forward. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the letter writer is doing already that will serve them well, and I'm glad to hear that they're doing it, is like they're they're thinking about it. They're like, I know I don't see my friend that often, so my image of them is kind of fixed um, as the last time I saw them. And one of the things that I am now doing to uh, kind of correct for that is I am imagining what my friend is going through. Um, I'm kind of reminding myself repeatedly that they don't see themselves the way I saw them the last time we hung out two years ago. Um, so that it's not just like every time I see them, I'm like, oh, right, I have to think of them differently now. Quick, try to catch up. Um, and I think that mental work, just that act of imagining, um, mm-hmm. of reminding yourself what someone has told you about themselves um, and spending a few minutes every couple of weeks, every couple of months putting yourself in their position is a good act to do regardless of like what gender your friends are. Um, it's, it's a really good way to um, maintain a close relationship with someone throughout the course of a lifetime where they might change a lot. So today I was getting a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about transition. I was as I often do when I'm getting tattooed, relaying the story of, you know, how I came to reflect on my own um, gender identity and my own sort of sexual identity when I was, um, you know, first when I was about 21 and then when I was, uh, again, just sort of turning into my 30s a few years ago. Um, and I was talking about how I used to wear a lot of dresses when I was younger and now I no longer do. And I was lying on my front because the tattoo I was getting was right there. So I was lying on my front. Um, and I realized as I was reaching the end of the story, she hadn't quite worked out whether or not I chose to transition or not. <laughs> like, she literally didn't, think, didn't know whether this was a story that ended with, and then I decided to become a woman, or whether this story ended with, and then I decided to let this whole thing go and just um, p- p- put it aside. And the way in which she expressed that question was, she said, so did you 
do you, do you still wear dresses sometimes? <laughs> it's like, I'm wearing one now. <laughs> it just looks like a shirt when I'm lying on my front. <laughs> if I were lying on my back, you wouldn't be asking this question. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, sorry. No, but it is. <laughs> I'm just talking about myself here. Yeah. You want to hear about my problems? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Living in the world in a body is challenging and exciting. Yeah. And it's funny sometimes when you're with someone who intrinsically understands something about you and then ans- asks a question that you realize like, oh, in some ways we're very much in tune in this moment. And yeah. in another way, oh, you don't see something about me that I feel like is incredibly obvious. I want to underline she's an actual tattoo artist genius whom I met for the first time today. That's so exciting. Daddy, it was I'm so glad. Would you read our next letter? I would love to. Thank you. Wait, I read the last one. Did you? Then I'll read it. Thank you. Subject, 36-year-old virgin. Dear Prudence, I'm a 36-year-old woman who has never had sex. This has been a personal choice for me. While I'm larger than certain beauty standards, I'm confident and comfortable with my body, and men definitely pay attention to me. However, when I was younger, that was not the case. I have a long history of being abused both physically and emotionally by men. I've worked very hard to heal, but I've never met a man I felt safe enough with to share my body. I recently met a man who seriously challenged that. He's a good-looking professor at a university about two hours away from me. The distance made me feel at ease, and I felt sure that nothing serious could grow between us because he's moving away soon to start working on his PhD at a university out of state. But I've fallen for him. He's been nothing but respectful and kind to me and was very understanding when I told him I'd never had sex. He said that since it's been important enough for me to stay this way for so long, I should keep waiting until I find the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, which is exactly how I feel. But I was expecting to have to explain and defend my decision. From that moment on, I felt comfortable enough to share most of my body in my bed with him, knowing he would never cross that particular line, and he never did. Unfortunately, this has led to a much deeper relationship than either of us were prepared for. We have similar philosophies and passions on an every important matter we're on the same page. I've always been cynical and pragmatic about love. I never believed in soulmates until now. Unfortunately, he's decided to end it. He feels as strongly about me as I do, but he doesn't want to start the hardest degree of his life in a long-distance relationship. If it were a couple of years, I could probably stand it, but it's a five-year program. I'll be 41 when he's finished. I'm so impossibly sad to think of my life without him. I don't know whether I should accept his decision and give him space or try to talk to him about it. In my experience, trying to change someone's mind is the surest way to drive them away. But knowing he's so close right now and not taking advantage of every moment we could be spending together hurts. He leaves in a few weeks. What do I do? I love this person. I just, I have so much uh, compassion and and care and my heart goes out to this person. I really... um, yeah, I just, uh, I think, I don't know, I, just, I want to register that. I want to yeah. register a pathos. I want to register a real empathy and real sort of care. Um, and I also am somewhat obliged to say that if you are just about to start your PhD, you're not a professor. Yeah. I, I, as soon as I saw sorry. that, I was like, you know, I hope sorry. he's not saying to you, I'm a f- professor. Yeah. Because then I would say he's kind of professionally misrepresenting himself. Yes. Yeah. And I know that's not necessarily the point here. <laughs> I worked fucking hard for yeah. my, <laughs> to get my professorial position. Um, it's not like a an lot advice columnist do. where you can just yeah. call yourself one. And, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so anyway, he's, he's, a, he's an academic, and that's a fabulous and wonderful thing to be, and congratulations on getting a PhD program. It's a, a noble... Um, uh, profession. I love um, you so much. Yeah, thanks, baby. Um, <laughs> so, 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 um, yeah, so I also feel for this person, and I, I think this is worth 
at least having a conversation. Um, I don't think that necessarily I want to encourage this letter writer to like throw caution to the wind and just say like, let's at least enjoy these next couple of weeks or like, I'm going to fight for you no matter what. Mm-hmm. But I think you both had a really good conversation about things that you agree on, things that you feel like are limits. Um, and that's totally legitimate. But given that this has kind of never happened to you before, given that this guy feels so different, um, your connection is really powerful. Um, he has listened to you and been with you and respected your boundaries in a way that just makes you feel like, uh, the hills are alive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's worth going back and saying like, you may feel this way. I just want you to know, um, for me, I'd be willing to try to figure this out. I would, if you ever wanted to talk about the possibility of rearranging our lives so that we are in the same place, I would want to at least talk about it. I don't feel this way often. Um, I would be, I would be up for that. Um, if you're not, I get it. And I don't want to try to force a conversation where we're not on the same page, but I think I would regret not saying to you, if you want to try to make this work, there's a lot I'd be willing to do to try to make it work myself. And you know, if his response to that is half in, half out, or like, gosh, I kind of feel this way, but not really, you know, you have a good answer, you know that. But if if there's a part of him that's like, yes, I know that we did the smart thing, but I also just feel unfinished here, and that hurts. Um, you two may be able to figure out something else. And, you know, if not, if all that happened is that you had a really, really good, relatively short relationship with someone who respected you, listened to you, and intuited how you felt about your own relationship to your own sex life, that's really, really good. And you should give yourself a lot of time to kind of grieve the end of it. I I agree entirely. I think that that's a conversation that um, this letter writer owes it to herself to to have um, with this man. And I think he, uh, you know, one, one thing we know about him is is that he is committed enough to thinking and feeling about the world that he's going to spend five years of his life in a highly uncertain um, job market um, to pursue um, a, a course of study about which he's presumably deeply passionate. No one goes into a PhD program for purely cynical reasons. So, I mean, um, or, or if you do, you shouldn't. Um, but it's it, it indicates a certain romance of some kind i mean mm-hmm. you know we, we are we are romantic people i think um 41 is not that old you know and yeah it's like that's oh, enough, 41 that's something i really want yeah. to say you know as someone as, as a woman who just turned 36 two days ago um you know the idea of feeling like some part of my life will be over when i'm 41 you know i don't i don't think that that's going to be true i hope that's not going to be true i'm really excited to see what my 40s will be like and i'm excited to see for this lady too um, what her 40s are going to be like because I think they could be really remarkable. Yeah, and even if he's just like, nope, I've really thought about it and you know, I, I, I don't want to ask you to move with me and I don't want to be in a long-distance relationship. I'd rather just end it. You know, maybe you guys can like have a phone call once a year and kind of he can be like your fond memory and like mm-hmm. you can occasionally get a wistful cup of coffee together. Um, and if not, and if it's just too hard, you know, I, I hope you have friends in your life that you can say the next couple of weeks are going to be really painful. I'm going to want to call him. And I, I would love if we could maybe, you know, like have a girl's night at the house mm-hmm. and I can call you instead or even just text you when I'm thinking about calling him just so you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to need a little extra help and support getting through the next few weeks. I hope you can ask for that because... You know, 
it is hard. I when you when you have ended a relationship but the other person hasn't left town yet. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard and and I want you to be surrounded by people who love you. So, I just wish you the best. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Figure out what it is you enjoy doing on your own that doesn't involve self-punishment, spending a lot of money, doing things that are super risky, um, but things that can feel wholesome and self-caring. Um, and I think, you know, either I hope things work out for you two wild and crazy kids or that every other guy you date is as good or better than this guy mm-hmm. and treats you this well. Like, this should be your new floor um, if you date. Like, he needs to be as good to you. Maybe you won't feel as excited about him as this particular guy, but he needs to be this level of good to yeah. you. Um, and something is changing in your life that is not dependent on this person's choices. You know, yeah. Something is growing and something is occurring to you about yourself as an individual, as an individual who is interested in sex, as an individual who is interested in love and romance and soulmates and relationships, you know, these things, um, they might grow and they yeah. might grow quite independently of choices another human being makes. Yeah, and I think, th- I'm, I'm glad you said that because one of the things that felt really important to me about this letter was uh, the the romance of it, um, the desire for a soulmate in it, the desire to like maintain a really tight boundary on certain kinds of sex. Um, they feel really earned on the part of the letter writer. It doesn't feel Pollyanna-ish. It doesn't feel judgmental about other people's choices. There's nothing in here that makes me think like, I want you to reevaluate your ideas of sex or soulmates or intimacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so mostly I just really, really want to affirm for this letter writer that like the relationship that you want to have with sex and romance and your own body and other people, I think is a really good one and you're entitled to it. You get Mm -hmm. to have that. You get to defend it. You get to advocate for it. You get to be proud of it. Mm -hmm. And I hope you find other people um, who love and respect that part of you as much as you do. There's a, if I could put it in these terms, there's a profound dignity in this kind of honesty. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the disclosures that this person is able to make about, um, her, her body, her relation to her body, her relation to people in her life. Um, there is something there that's genuinely inspiring, actually, mm-hmm. and, and worthy of, of applause, I think. Yeah, and sorry, one last thing. I know we've been spending a little time on this one. I think sometimes we we get to the part of the conversation of, like, the idea of virginity, especially female virginity, is one that's been very damaging mm-hmm. and, like, handed down to women um, by people seeking to do bad and harmful oh, things. Oh, yeah, we should, we should talk about that. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think sometimes what that comes with is this idea of, so we need to just totally get rid of it. Anyone who's invested in um, withholding a certain kind of sexual intimacy for a certain type of relationship needs to just get rid of it. The best thing we can all do is be the exact same kind of sex positive and like, you know, checking new things off the sexual checklist every year. Mm. And I just really want to be clear here as much as I think it is, you know, I didn't even see like, aside from using the word virgin to open the letter, it didn't feel like there were certain ideas of like, this has to do with my integrity as a person or I'd be giving something away or um, like damaging ideas about virginity that I think are are worth losing. So mostly I just want to say as, as much as I think it's really good to acknowledge the ways in which like what we mean when we use the word virginity is like, it's kind of like IQ tests. It's kind of fake. Um, but that does not mean everyone needs to be on the like the bus of like love having casual sex. This is the most empowered way to be. Um, 
So I just, I don't know. Do, I, do we need to say something in the other direction too about how having lots of sex is also really cool? You know, yeah, just, it's, it's going to be like, like a, a ping pong I'm machine. I'm a 36-year-old woman who's had a lot of sex. And um, I think that's cool too. Yes, <laughs> it's all gravy. Yeah. Um, it's not all gravy. <laughs> some of it's gravy. You've got to have some gravy. <laughs> would, you, would you please read that next <laughs> I can't believe you brought gravy into it at that point. I'm sorry. <laughs> In Philadelphia, they refer to tomato sauce as gravy. No. They do, yeah. Tomato sauce? So the, the, the gravy. Sauce, the tomato sauce you have on a pasta is called gravy, yeah. I'm very Anyone surprised. from Philadelphia, this is true. This is a true fact. Yes, it is true. Thank what you. What do they yeah. call gravy? Uh, well, gravy means something different to me and you anyway. Brown sauce that you put on mashed potatoes. I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about. Brown sauce that you put on mashed potatoes. The brown sauce that you put on mashed potatoes. You don't know what that is? Would I be throwing potential happiness away? I don't know. What are you, ta- what are you talking about? Brown sauce that you put on potatoes. You put everything on potatoes. Put vinegar. I put vinegar on potatoes. Earlier. You That's know I sauce. didn't mean vinegar. I know you didn't mean I don't know what you did mean, though. So I'm... I feel like I'm being tricked. All right, you should. You should. We should, we should save this for later. We'll talk about gravy later. Thank you, darling. Would I be throwing potential happiness away? Dear Prudence... I'm a single man in my late 40s, and I've been mostly happy not being in a relationship. I've come to accept the possibility that I will remain single for the rest of my life. That doesn't mean I will never be in a relationship again, or won't ever try to date, but I'm comfortable whatever happens. I have a very good friend that I've known for over 20 years. We have a close platonic relationship. Unfortunately, she's suffering from a debilitating disease that is making it more and more difficult for her to live alone, plus she lives in a very isolated area. Would I be throwing away potential future happiness by having my friend move in with me so I can look out for her? I mean, this would be a perpetual roommate situation, so she would not ever be looking for another place. Is it too much to ask that, should I meet someone and it becomes a relationship, that we'd be considered a package deal? When I say she has no one, I mean it. She has even been denied disability, although we hope an appeal will reverse that decision, and her part-time job won't cover the bills for much longer. I want to be there for my good friends, but while I am comfortable with not being in a relationship, I don't know if I'm taking steps towards ensuring it will never happen. Everyone I know says I'm crazy for even considering this, but I would like an unbiased opinion. Okay, I, this one's very easy this for me. This is the easiest one in it's the world. It's be- What a beautiful thing. This Move in with your friends. Yeah. Have fun. Great. This is fabulous. I love that this person thinks I'm unbiased. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I feel flattered by that. This is the easiest question we've gotten all day. This is fantastic. It's beautiful. This is beautiful. I'm so glad that you don't feel like constrained by like the only way to live a good life is to eventually like settle down with one person that I'm in yeah. a romantic relationship with and everyone else can just figure their shit out or like whatever. Um, this is wonderful. This is loving. This is a, a, a great way to like create family in your own life. Um, and I also think that it will draw the kind of people that you w- would want to be in a romantic relationship mm. with. Like this is not just like, Oh, this will be a good screener for weeding out bad people. I, I, I genuinely believe that having this like lovely, loving, supportive home based relationship with your best friend is going to draw like-minded thoughtful, caring, compassionate people to you. Um, and that doesn't mean like, this is going to be a great way to like meet chicks, but like, it's going to be a great way to meet chicks. Because like taking good steps towards building a lovely life, uh, a lovely life. Um, a lovely life. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it attracts other people. I don't mean to get all the secret about it, but I want to be a little the secret about it. It's a little bit the secret. Yeah. Um, I, I I couldn't agree more, except to say that I don't think this guy um, seems as keen as as that line of thinking implies. 
to find a chick. Like, I actually think there's something about this guy in his late 40s when he says, I, I've come to accept the possibility that I remain, remain, will remain single. I sort of believe that. I think he has yeah. to, you know, become quite peaceful about that idea because he sounds so genuinely enthusiastic about this friendship mm-hmm. and the idea of, like, you know, this is maybe a bit unusual, but maybe we could live together and, and make ourselves primary in each other's lives and we don't have to date to do that. We don't have to, like, have sex to do that, but yeah. maybe we could think of ourselves as each other's people in some yeah. way and have a companionate relationship that is primary and organizational for both of us, share the privileges of our lives, share our domestic space, share rhythms and routines of life and ultimately grow old together. You know, you don't need to want to have sex with someone for that. You don't need to use the language of romantic or erotic attraction to want that with someone. Yeah. And it's not until the, you know, unlike a lot of letters that start out with like, I'm very happy, but I know exactly. It's there's not no trouble until that last sentence. Like mm-hmm. the only reason he doubts himself is because a lot of his other friends are like, this seems like a bad idea. And I would just say, hopefully they don't say that a lot. They're mistaken. Um, the, your other friends are wrong. You are not, bananas for considering this um, and you should absolutely do it and have all your friends over for a dinner party this is Bobby from company 15 years later <laughs> the friend's like Bobby what are you doing you know anyway, he doesn't like Sondheim so he it's not that, that I don't I like Sondheim it's that it. I don't get Sondheim yeah, yeah. anyway <laughs> and I try but, you know also the one thing that I'm just thinking about slightly here is so for a couple of years you and I were best friends right mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it would be fair to say during that time we were primary in each other's life. Oh, yeah. And we were definitely like, well, someday we'll settle down together. Yes. In the back of my mind, it was always like, once Grace stops dating a lot of unsuitable people, <laughs> we will be able to get down to the business of settling down. It's fair. I mean, <laughs> like they were super unsuitable. They were lovely, fine, fine people, but they were super unsuitable. Every time one of us, it wasn't just me, sometimes you dated people too. And anytime anyone would meet one of us and want to date us, we'd be like, hey, look, this is my best friend. You know, we, we're a package deal. How do you feel about that? Um, and people would always be like, yeah, that, that's cool. You know, Danny yeah. seems great, Grace, you know, whatever. Um, but then we ended up like boning any, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we ended up. But, but I don't think, like, I don't want to just say, like, this will be a fun lead up to a romance between oh, the two of, course, of you. Oh, of course, not necessarily. Like, those years yeah. were real and meaningful and important, and we were yeah. able to navigate that. I think, you know, even if somebody was taken aback by it, often the response yeah. was like, okay, I'll figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's totally true. Um, I, I guess I, I wanted to remain open to the possibility that when one has a commitment to another individual to whom one feels soul bonded, the nature of that commitment can change over time. Yeah, and that's sometimes, cool too. sometimes you eventually want to make out. Yeah. So this ah. next letter is very short. And I initially just texted it to uh, Grace and Nicole with the caption, Lamau, this owns. Yeah. So I am taking a slightly different approach to it than the letter writer. He texts like a 15-year-old skater boy, by the way. <laughs> Which is hot AF. It's an important part of my gender identity (laughs) in retrospect. That Uh, and Robin Hood. (laughs) The two polarities. Just skating through Sherwood. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes. So this person is bummed about something that I think owns. The subject is gender swap. Dear Prudence, my parents are swapping genders. I thought it was a joke. 
but they seem to be going through with it. Mom now wants to be called dad, and dad now wants to be called mom, but they say they'll still love us, whatever we call them. I keep hoping my parents will forget this whole thing, but I guess that is selfish on my part. How bad would it be to misgender them for the rest of their lives? Um, I think one of the things that I find really charming about this, which is like maybe real and maybe not, I don't know. I could 100% see it happening and I could also 100% see like some particular type of person who's like, this is a good thought experiment to test the limits of tolerance. What am I supposed to do? Um, and so either way, I'll just say like, how bad would it be to just misgender them for the rest of their lives? It would be extremely common and people do it to trans people all the time. So you would be in good company. Lots of people do this. Yeah, you know, that kind of framing it is like cheeky, like how bad would it be really? Like mm. most trans people's relatives would probably fall into your boat. You would have lots of company and lots of people who thought you were doing the sensible thing. So that's an answer to that part of your question. Mm. Which, d does that remove from us the responsibility of saying it would be really bad and you shouldn't do it? Because I want to say that too. It'd be really bad and this person shouldn't do it. I mean, it would be a way to make sure that you don't have an especially close relationship with your parents in the long run. So again, you know, I don't want to frame it in terms of like how bad would it be? Because you it, think this person wants to be called bad. Yeah. You think this person wants to be naughty and wants Absolutely. to be a little transgressive. Yeah. 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 Misgendering is the least naughty thing in the world. Yeah. You know? It's the thing My the world God, does. Smoke some weed and move to a smallish mountain town. There's <laughs> literally anything else you could do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think obviously the tone of the letter is like, you know, A of all, there's like way too little detail and that's part of the reason I feel like it might be a thought experiment. Um, and yet it also does, I think, accurately represent a kind of letter that I get a lot. Um, and so on the like open-ended side, I just want to say, if both of your parents are transitioning, that's a big change. You are allowed to have some feelings about it. You don't need to share them with your parents unfiltered. But I would recommend talking to a therapist and sharing with that therapist who is not related to you, who is not themselves transitioning, and who is being well paid for their time. Um, you can kind of say all of the unfiltered things, some of which might be selfish, some of which might be petty, all of which will have to do with how you're feeling about this. And that is like a space where you are allowed to do those things. All of us, I think, um, at times feel a sense of ownership over our parents um, that may or may not be like based in reality. Um, but it's kind of part of the nature of being a child, which is sort of like, it's your job to stay the way I remember you when I was 12 years old. Um, and if you do anything that deviates from that, um, I'm allowed to be 12 again and mad, which is part of why there's a real 12 year old energy to this letter, <laughs> which is sort of like, well, what if I happened to have mac and cheese every day for breakfast, mom, what would you do? It's like, you would probably get a little bit of scurvy, but no one's going to send you to jail. Mm. I mean, there's something a little odd about the sentence, mom now wants to be called dad, and dad now wants to be called mom, but they say they'll still love us, whatever we call them. Like, you know, why but there? It's like, there's, there's no implication that this person is testing their parents. Like, what can I get away with? Mm -hmm. I suppose this goes to your point that the idea of how bad would it be is framing this as a sort of, like a cheeky little yeah. game of yeah. Kind, if my parents know. have promised, what can I do to them and make them still love me? And yeah, st and still extract from them a continuing promise of love. Right. If my parents say they'll love me if I misgender them forever, what's my incentive to not misgender yeah. them? 
Um, And I guess I would say, you know, you know, imagine for a moment the vulnerability uh, and the intensity that it might have taken your parents to share this with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I'll say too, like some of this does sound a little like uncommon, but it's also, I think, not uncommon for trans people to seek one another out either consciously or unconsciously, um, often before we know that transition is on the horizon for us. I, I, I also know people who have been in couples where one person transitioned and later the other person was like, oh, we can do that? Because I definitely want to do that. Um, so it does sometimes Kind of including happen. us. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, you know, people sometimes get this like outside perspective of like, oh, what is it, contagious? And it's like, yeah, freedom is contagious. Um, and, and so like... Sex is all gravy, but freedom is... <laughs> freedom is the stuff you put on potatoes. Um, yeah, so you now know um, that your parents shared something really vulnerable with you. Um, and you also know they have committed to loving you, even if for the rest of your life, you say, I don't respect that choice. I want to ignore that choice. I want to aggressively fly in the face of that. So that's what you know. You know that your parents have risked a lot to tell you this, um, and you know that they have given you full permission um, to take all the time in the world that you need to not do it, um, to do the opposite. So no one, um, no one's sitting on your hands here. No one's like threatening you with a ruler for being a naughty little boy. Um, gross. Nobody's. I agree. That was a really gross moment. I think this person's being gross right now. Yeah. And I want to really like. Name that. Yeah. Um, nobody's saying that they're going to throw you out of the family. Um, but this is also happening, and this change is real. And you can either be a part of that process. You can either learn something. Um, you can either grow closer to your parents um, by finding out more about what this has been like for them. Or you can make it really clear that you think they're being ridiculous um, and that you will only ever begrudgingly um, grant them, you know, any kind of acknowledgement of the lives that they're leading. Um, and you can have that if you want. You can do that your whole life if you want. Um, you can hurt them in that way if you want. You can lash out in that way every time you're mad about something else if you want. And they'll probably keep coming back. Um, a lot of us do. You don't have to do that. And I think, in fact, you might find um, that you enjoy being around your family a little more if you don't kind of single-handedly try to say, I'm going to live in a world where these transitions aren't happening. This letter suffers from the same uh, framework for thinking about transition as the one, um, the, you know, the letter writer that we admired very much with the non-binary friend in, in, in the wedding. In the sense that, again, it's framing transition in terms of wanting to be called something. Um, in terms of like how language is going to be used and how re- people are going to be referred to and addressed and those speech acts are presented to us here as though they're sort of purely abstract forms of you know vocal engagement that don't mm-hmm. reflect any kind of emotional or interior growth of any kind. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that a really good response um, would be to try to reconfigure this as, you know, not that my mom wants to be called dad, but my mom has learned something or, or has come to feel some particular way about um, the, themself, you know, yeah. uh, himself. Uh, and those feelings are what are important. You know, the, the labels, the pronouns, the references, they're all secondary. The thing that is primary is like, what, what have you found out about yourself? What do you want to share with me and with the rest of this family about what it means to be you? Um, 
those kinds of questions, I think, are far more profound than simply um, what's your pronoun? You know, mm. what's your pronoun is, is a necessary uh, practice and, and it's something that, you know, we're quite rightly acclimating to. But it's the, it literally is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it, it, it's the part of trans identity that exists in language and not the part that exists in trans people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what's important is like, who I think I am and yeah. why I think that and what it means to think that and the things that I don't understand about it and things I do understand about it, things that I'm learning about it, ways in which my relation to these questions can change over time, mm-hmm. um, ways in which I do want to be accountable, ways in which I don't honestly want to be accountable, you know, um, ways in which I understand my identity is existing in relation to others, ways in which I understand my relation is existing purely um, in relation to myself. Those, those, those are important questions and they, they you know, there's so much more important than like what word should I use to describe this? Because as important as that is, and I'm not trying to diminish its importance in sort of political terms, but like it's political because uh, it reflects something important about human beings. Yeah. Again, I think that's such a good way of reorienting it. Cause like when I think of the story of my own transition, um, my relationship with my family members and the changing way in which my family members refer to me has certainly been a part of it. Sure. But I would never describe like the story of my transition is that my family members started calling me Daniel. So framing it as like, you know, this parent wants to be called dad, this parent wants to be called mom, as the story of your parents' transition is, as you said, tip of the iceberg. There's so much more going on there that, again, is real whether or not you want to be a part of it, you know, in that kind of like, facts don't care about your feelings kind of like silliness. Mm-hmm. Um, like the fact of your parents' transition um, doesn't really care how you feel about it. It's still real. It's still present. It still has been real. It still has been present. So you know, you are allowed to take your time. You are allowed to have complicated feelings about it, but you can either participate in it or you can kind of like, you know, stand in the corner, stomp your feet, have a tantrum for the rest of your life if you would like to. Um, I think it's always good to let go of a tantrum. I wanted to have a little one earlier today. Um, Wanted to. Wanted to, yeah. (laughs) He had a tantrum, you guys. It's fine, I wasn't there. Would you say I had a tantrum? Well, you put the phone down on me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I was, you know, like okay, little, like, yeah. little logistic things weren't going my way. And I was just like, this is someone's fault. It wasn't someone's fault. Life is just sometimes a little <laughs> tricky. And that is true for me as much as for anyone else. And it was really good after a few minutes of like, why is this happening to me? To just say like, well, it is. Okay. So what are we going to do now? Um, and if I can do it and I am a selfish little diva, um, <laughs> then letter writer, I have a lot of faith in you. Uh, I have no idea. I feel like we've been going long, by the way. I, I have no idea too. how we're doing on time. And we would love to know a little bit more about how you're doing. And if you have any problems, hopefully none of you do. You all also don't have to ask any questions if you don't have yes. any. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, we have a microphone. Hi, I have a very privileged kind of question. Uh, I teach kindergarten and uh I sometimes ask the parents or the families to send things in crayons or um, magnets for my board. And uh, I ask that they tell me so that I can get an idea of how many I'm going to end up with. But that doesn't always happen. And I end up with an incredible amount of items that I don't necessarily need all of them. Uh, And I do kind of need a few magnets at home. 
I haven't <laughs> taken any home yet. Uh-huh. But there's, you know, I, I, there's this part of me that's like, well, if I, it's not like I'm embezzling money. If I take home a magnet for Ooh. my fridge, I don't have any magnets at home. I that like would be you. nice. If anybody, <laughs> by the way, if anybody has a spare magnet, yeah. this is the person to talk to after the show. Who could use some help? Or 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 like a magic eraser. I have so many magic erasers in my classroom now, which is a great problem to have. Yeah. But I feel badly about taking them. But I kind of want one for my house. Is that bad? It's not bad to think about things, and it's not bad to want things. I also agree with Grace's gesture now, which is that, yes, in the grand scheme of things, if you took home a magic eraser, I don't think your children, the students that you teach, would be ill-served by it. But if that makes you feel uncomfortable and jumpy, um, then maybe it'd be great to like have a box at school where you're just like, for other kindergarten teachers, like I have a lot of extra stuff. If any of y'all are short on them in your classroom, please grab them. Um, and then, you know, if at the end of a couple of days or a couple of weeks, no one's taken it, you can just be like, no one in the school needs this. It's one magnet. I will provide it with a good home. So the first thing I want to say, it, good, perfect, beautiful. Sure. Let's get down to the real. Okay. So the first thing I want to say is thank you for being a kindergarten teacher. It's incredible work. And just, I know from the kindergarten teachers that I know in my own life, just such incredible hard work and just graft and and i just admire it so much so uh, it's so important and, and thank thank you um so secondly i think danny's exactly right that um the thing that you need to take care of in these kinds of situations is what is what is my ambivalence about taking something as trivial as a magnet right why do i feel weird about that why does it raise a question for me um what part of me has made this bigger than it needs to be and those are the questions that will lead you to do something like uh, think about how these magnets might be useful to other people. Uh, think about how these magic, what are they called? Magic erasers? I don't know. What are they? What are they? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's the best thing a teacher. Get teachers magic erasers. It okay. It's better than anything in the world. They're uh-huh. meant for cleaning kitchens. Okay. Wow. Okay, brilliant. Well, we should so get the some best of these. eraser in the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, so. so Okay, brilliant. Um, so I think you're, you're going to find a way to make these available to other people. Make, try, try, try to figure out how um, the magic erasers and the magnets can be useful to other human beings. And then eventually you're going to take them home and they're going to feel fine and you're not going to feel guilty. And you know this room full of fine people will be happy that you, a wonderful kindergarten teacher, um, have, have a magic eraser and, and, and a magnet that you can feel really good about. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think, yeah. People are clapping. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think people want you to have them. Yeah. But you have to work out why you feel ambivalent about it. That's the part that's important, right? Because otherwise, you're just relying on the applause. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, and I think, like, to that end, like, you know, when you couple it with, like, this is a privileged problem, I think at least part of you is aware, like, a lot of schools don't have these supplies. And, um, you know, it may be that, you know, not to like add another job on top of the job that you have, but it may be at some point you want to turn the generosity of your students' parents into like, you know, are are there like local student library fines that need to be paid off at other schools? Are there like lunch fines that need to be paid off for other schools so that kids don't like have to worry about where they're going to get their lunch? Are there, you know, other ways that you can kind of like rally these parents who are like, we can acquire stuff, um, you know, in your own community and in your own profession in ways that feel like, oh, it's it's not just like, what am I going to do with all these magnets? Um, but thank you. Yeah, hop on up. Hi. My sister-in-law is very generous, always has been, 
to the point where I think she maybe has a shopping addiction. But that's none of my business. So, (laughs) but it used to be, it would be, you know, she'd be like, oh, I found this cute $5 thing. And I was like, thanks. Recently it's been, oh, I found you this cute $100 purse. Oh, I found you this $200 skincare. And I always say, oh my God, thank you so much. I can't accept this. To which her response is, but you deserve to have these things. Mm. So how does one say no thank you when the person won't accept a no thank you? Wow. Mm. Yeah, I mean, shopping Ooh. addiction is uh, high on my list of possibilities. Fencing is also yeah. on the list. A- attraction? This could be a form of courtship. <laughs> I would put that lower on the scale, I, but know. yeah, it's always possible. Um I, you know, I think there's probably a couple of different ways. There's like a, 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 I often like to offer a high conflict route and a low conflict route because realistically, like the degree, like, I, you know, there's just things that like, had I a sister-in-law, she could slap me in the face and I still wouldn't be like, we need to talk about this. Like I just, <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, you could always accept them. That's one option. It sounds like you've been doing that. Um, I, I, I think if I wanted to, like really set the tone. I would bring it up with her before she tries it again. And I would just say, I haven't always known how to talk about this with you because on the one hand, it's extremely generous and I haven't wanted to seem ungrateful. Um, but I, I'm just not comfortable accepting these really expensive gifts from you. And so I would just like to request that you not give them to me. If you want to give presents to your other friends, uh, that'd be wonderful. But my request is the way that you can make me feel the most appreciated um, and comfortable is if, you know, just gifts it like big holidays. And in between, if you want to, you know, do something, let's get coffee, let's go for a walk. But I just really want you to know what my preference is so that in the future when you want to celebrate me, you know how to do it. And then that will at least make it really clear in the future if she keeps trying to do this, she's doing it for her, not for you. And you can kind of, again, gently, because you don't want to say like, you jerk, how dare you? This is awful. And, and you also don't necessarily want to say like, by the way, I think you have a shopping addiction and you better talk about it with like my sibling tomorrow. Um, you're just setting the limit in terms of like your own zone. Um, and so then if she tries it again, you can just say like, this is really, really kind um, as you know, that's like the to me that's like the magic thing where I'm like, oh, I'm safe. No one can get mad at me if I say, as you know, because I'm referring to an authority greater than myself, the past. Um, but you can just say like, as you know, um, I'm not able to accept these gifts going forward. That's such a fake expression, but it also sometimes I need to protect moving myself. Forward. Yeah, by like, oh, as you know, moving forward. Look at all these forces that aren't me creating the situation. You can't blame me for any of this. It's just as you know that we're moving forward. Um, you know, because I'm, of the existence of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I. I can't. And and then that's it. I think the, 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 I, I agree with all that. The thing I want to underline um, is you, if you don't want to accept them, you've got to bring this up at a time when they're not being offered. That just seems the really important thing. Um, it can't be situational or occasional. <clears throat> it needs to be a kind of uh, a reflection in, in a different kind of context. Um, because if it, you know, if it becomes a thing of like the straw that broke the camel's back, that would be an unnecessarily kind of high conflict um, solution. But actually trying to think, you know, is this a pattern of behavior that we can address in a different way, in ways that, you know, um, reflect on this person's part, as you said, a great deal of generosity and kindness, you know. Um, 
that would be a good way forward, I think. Yeah. Less focusing on specifics, more focusing on, you know, what does it mean for our relationship that this keeps happening? If she wants to buy supplies for a local school. Yeah. There's a kindergarten teacher in the audience tonight. Maybe, maybe you all should talk. Well, hang on. But the problem with the kindergarten was that the parents were too generous. In fact, it's, it's a version of the same You're right. problem. Shoot. Um, if anyone works for a kindergarten that is sort of under-resourced or right now. Or has a sister-in-law who doesn't give you anything. A, pars- a parsimonious brother-in-law. Um, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are the people to talk around. to after the show. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think there was one more in that same area. Yes. My girlfriend uh, believes in astrology. So about six months ago, she was super upset to learn that when she was studying the birth charts of her family, that the charts of both her parents and her young nephew suggest that they might die suddenly and violently. She decided not to tell her parents about this, particularly because her father also believes in astrology. So she's held this to herself and is becoming more and more anxious. The problem is that this summer we're scheduled to go on an extended road trip with all of them. And to make matters worse, worse we're actually going to be near her, where her father grew up in a small mountain town. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and he loves to drive crazy, he loves to show off, and he, he's super nice but he's so difficult to reason with. <laughs> so the conundrum is on one hand, she knows that if she would tell him about this prediction that he would take it seriously and he might drive more safely. But on the other hand, she doesn't want to reveal what the prediction is and, and freak her father out. Oh my goodness, thank you That's for that. That's a hell of an ending. Also, I'm a, it, it, it breaks my heart a little bit that you didn't get to see that lady's face because that you, madam, you are beautiful and brilliant and I love you. And that moment was absolutely wonderful, yeah. Um. Um, yeah. So the good news is your problem actually doesn't have a lot to do with astrology. The good news is you get to have the kind of conversation I hope never to have with an in-law, which is I'm not getting in the car with you. Yeah. Uh, and it has nothing to do with any of those other things. And it has everything to do with you don't drive safely. Um, and, and that can be really hard because like, I think especially in scripts about drunk driving, we at least have a script of like holding firm when someone's like, no, I'm fine. Um, and you can say like, no, you're not, I'm holding firm. Other people are going to back me up. Um, when it comes to other kinds of really dangerous driving, often the tactic when somebody challenges that is like, what are you talking about? Don't be ridiculous. You're being, you're, you're, you're making a huge fuss over nothing. This is totally outlandish. This is diva ish. Where's this coming from? Calm down. Like all kinds of like shamey, like, what kind of bananas response is this, like tactics? Um, and they can be really hard to deal with. And the great news is that's just like the bluster before the storm passes. And it's actually really, really good if someone you know drives really unsafely just to say like, I've been in the car with you often enough to know that it's not safe. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, I hope you choose to drive differently. But until you do, the only thing that I can do is say, I'm not going to get behind the wheel with you and I'm going to hold firm to that. And, you know, you'll have to have that conversation with mm. your girlfriend and that'll be tough, especially if my guess is this guy does not often get challenged in the family. Um, and sometimes uh, gentlemen can get real weird about their, like, I am the one who drives, like I drive this family. If I didn't, I'd be thrown out of Paterfamilias Academy. Um, <laughs> 
but that I think that like that's the thing. Way, way, way more than like what other excuse like if you were to go and say like, let's just like hope he drives better and maybe occasionally fake that we're car sick so we have to like rent our own car. Like that is such a bad outcome for you. I don't want that for you. I want you guys to have the like uncomfortable conversation and then like if he does the thing of like, well, I guess they don't want to get in the car with me because I'm such a dangerous driver, but you don't think I'm a dangerous driver, do you? And to just like hold real firm to your decision and not get involved in that like weird fight he wants to have. Uh, that was the Miss Marple uh, conclusion because that was just like, oh, this astrology, it's all a smokescreen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the murders were being committed for totally different reasons that had to do uh, with, you know, the basest of human motives, money or something like that. Um, I think the, the astrology thing is part of the thing because I think it affects the way in which family groups talk to each other about um, fears and uh, ways in which fears get get misconstructed, right? The fear here is like, what if we're all fated to suffer in some particular way? What if, uh, what if something terrible is about to happen? Um, and what if we already know it's going to happen? And I think part of the uh, issue that that raises for me would be the question of how do you as an individual deal with your girlfriend's belief in astrology, a belief which I take it you probably don't share, or at least don't share in the way that, um, you know, uh, in the way in which that she does, um, and, and her father does, right? So part of the question is, um, do you want to instrumentalize her wacky belief in astrology for the purposes of saving the kids from the father-in-law, which would be a reasonable thing to do, except that I think um, as Danny says, there's a better solution to that problem. And the better solution to that problem is not getting in the car with the father-in-law. Sorry, father-in-law is not the right phrase. What would be the right phrase? Girlfriend's Girlfriend's father. dad. Yeah. In-law. Uh, go, yeah. 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 Father, in fact. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was nice. Um, yeah. So I think, I, think, I, I guess all I want to say is there is a real question that we all often have when dealing with each other's kooky beliefs. Um, and I say this as somebody who has plenty of kooky beliefs, like literally loads. Um, I read the tarot for myself every day. You know, I'm like that kind of, like you said I was about 20% woo the other day, right? Yeah. Like, and, and he's like, I'm kind of religious sometimes. It's yeah. very weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but your, your woo is religiosity and my woo is horoscopes and, um, but there's uh, also, the I think a lot of overlap in there. There is a lot of, my point is simply that. Um, that there are moments where the differences become, for us at least, like really fun, I think. Yeah. Um, the overlap's fun too, but the differences are really fun as well. And then there are moments where it can actually feel like, I don't know if you ever feel this, but I sometimes feel like, oh, but actually there's something about this that is mine and like I actually want to treasure in some way and I'm worried that I'm misrepresenting it for the sake of um, seeming less silly. I think we both sometimes want a couch with like, but of course I don't really. Yeah, I don't really believe this. And stuff. we don't yeah. really know what we mean by really. Like, no, exactly. Um, yeah. I think people often believe in things in really different ways, and we yeah. don't always know what we mean when we say. So, like, when I think about you know your girlfriend's concern, like we've had questions tonight about people whose parents are facing the very like real possibility of illness and unsafety. And so when your when your girlfriend reads something like, uh, you know, something that is bigger than both of my parents, 
um, leads me to be concerned about the possibility of a sudden violent death. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, again, like there are certainly ways in which that could like go down a kind of goofy path. Um, but I think there's also real ways that she's looking for um, ways to interpret or make sense of real issues in the family. Um, and I certainly understand why, you know, I, I've been in the car with somebody who drives like angrily and somebody who drives like they are out to win something. And it's absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely yeah. terrifying. And it also, as soon as it's over, you feel like you're nuts for even saying anything. Um, and that can be a really painful dynamic to try to name, especially when that person's your parent. Um, so I can really understand at least like why she would feel like, how do I make sense of this? Where is this coming from? Why is this force that is somehow bigger than my father taking over my father whenever he gets behind the wheel of a car? And so mostly I just want to say like, I really hope you can feel safe and secure in your decision to say like, I don't get behind the wheel of a car with that guy no matter what. Like, I don't care if it's like deep impact and the meteor just hit and like me and Elijah Wood have to like drive away. <laughs> Um, to escape the meteor. <laughs> I loved that movie so much. I'm sorry. Is it about trees who are friends? <laughs> no, it is about meteors. Anyways, but just, just to say to yourself and to your girlfriend, like, I don't get behind the wheel of the car with this guy. That's the new reality. And then that's great because you don't have to fight about it. You don't have to convince him he's an unsafe driver. That's just the new thing that you do. Um, and for anybody who's like, oh, there's somebody in my life who like doesn't drive great and you like are thinking about doing that, do it. It's great. Driving's very dangerous. Don't drive with people who don't do it very safely. Um, you're looking at me because you know that I was like stayed in a car where the Lyft driver was drunk the other day. No, that's not why I was looking okay. at you at all. I was, no, I was no, seeing no. a whole suspicious, like, you should have gotten out of that car. No. Which I know I should have gotten out of the car. The Lyft driver was totally wasted and it was terrifying. This is just a total telltale heart situation. Yeah, okay. I was not thinking yeah. of that at all. I feel all. bad because I was texting you and you were really scared. And yeah. I was just like, I'm sitting this one out. But yeah. I feel bad about it. Yeah, my point is, yeah, you should not let this guy drive you or anyone else. Yeah. You're all wonderful. And yeah. I promise I was not trying to call you out with my eyes. You were right to. And I love you so much. <laughs> I love you so much, I think baby. you should only be driven from places treasured and cradled like a Fabergé egg. <laughs> and I think that that should be true for all of us. We're, what are humans if not the ultimate Fabergé eggs? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Seattle, thank you so much for coming out. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Live production was by Faith Smith and Kirsten Holtz. Special thanks to the Museum of Pop Culture. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. <laughs>